Jesus invites us, all of us, out of the desert and wilderness of our sin and pride into the oasis of his love. He knows everything about us. He knows all of our darkest secrets, things that we are utterly ashamed of, things that we don't want anybody to ever know, and yet he loves us. And he desires a relationship with us. When our hearts have been cold to him, his heart remains settled on us. When we have been busy building little kingdoms of self where we get all of the glory, his heart has remained settled on us in love. While we have been spectacularly fickle, he has been spectacularly faithful. Even when we run away with all of our might, as we were just singing, his loving heart pursues us wherever we go. What kind of God are we dealing with here? This God, this kind of God, the one who pursues, the one who is faithful. The world, of course, scratches its head that God would descend in human flesh and die in our place on the cross for our sins. But that is the wisdom of God, that God himself would make a way for sinners to be with him forever, that his loving heart pursues us wherever we go. And so to all who are running away from God this morning and to all who need peace And to all who are running on empty this morning, or you've been feeding on the junk food of this world, you've been rummaging for scraps, and you've totally made a mess of your life, and you're having to deal with the consequences, or you're simply pretending you're fine, and you know deep down that you're not okay. To you, Jesus simply says, come, come unto me. There's one word for that, grace. Everything that we have is all due to his grace. It's a gift. It's not earned in any way. We are saved by grace, sanctified by grace. We receive blessings and gifts from God by grace. We serve others by grace. We endure suffering by grace, and in the end, we will finally be glorified by grace. It's all grace, and our hearts will be warmed when we contemplate this grace. The more we see of God's love for us at the cross, the more it will be easier for us to trust Him, easier for us to humble ourselves. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul will remind us and the Corinthian church that the entire Christian life can be summed up in one word, grace. And so when Paul looked over his life and ministry, and when Paul got on social media and made a post, this is what it said. Point the finger at grace. That was Paul's pinned tweet. That's what Paul put up on Facebook before he got sick of it and took a very long social media break. In fact, that's what Paul will say in regard to what was being said about him and being said about his ministry. Paul was being accused of all kinds of things. 
And so he defends himself in our passage today, and he clears the air, and when the smoke clears, he's pointing his finger at grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So Paul learned through all of his suffering that swagger and self-reliance and boasting and pride have no place in Christian ministry. That's why God gave him that thorn in the flesh after all. The thorn in the flesh that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was given to him by God in order to knock the swagger out of him. His swagger was thorned right out of him. And through that throbbing thorn in his flesh, whatever it was, Paul learned that pride and pizzazz and self-promotion have no place in the church and have no place in gospel ministry. Paul learned that as that thorn dug its way into his flesh. And so it was through the thorn in the flesh that Paul learned that ministry instead should be marked by weakness and by meekness and by humility. In fact, what we'll see later on in chapter 12 when Paul speaks about the thorn is that Paul is very reticent to speak about the wonderful things that God performs through him or even reveals to him. So Paul doesn't boast in his knowledge. Paul is very cautious. He doesn't want to draw any attention to himself. He knows and he has learned that ministry is about the glory of God, the grace of God, and not him. And he learned all this through all the intense suffering and persecution that he suffered. What might we learn today as Christians as we suffer the way we're suffering at this moment in history? Hmm. What might our thorns be teaching us right now? God took Paul through all of that suffering to teach him that he needs to rely on God, not himself, not his gifts, not his experience, and not his education. Recall, as I keep mentioning, that Paul is dealing with this group of false teachers called Uh, super apostles, they had invaded the Corinthian church and were gaining ground, and they were peddling this triumphalistic version of Christianity where suffering was not in the equation. And the Corinthians were buying into this theology hook, line, and seeker, and they were slowly turning on Paul. Paul had numerous antagonists in this little church that he planted. Church members, and super apostles. There were people who criticized his every move. They critiqued his preaching. They critiqued his leadership style. They critiqued his philosophy of ministry. And they critiqued his motives. That's the background to the books of First and Second Corinthians. So what Paul says here in verse 12 
is nothing short of a counterattack on one of the many charges being leveled against him by the super apostles. They were saying to the Corinthians, Paul's not sincere in his devotion and ministry to you. They were telling the Corinthians that Paul didn't really love them and he didn't really care about them. He said, Paul's fickle. He's really not a good pastor. And so Paul counters by saying that all that he has done in and among and toward the Corinthian church stemmed from sincerity. He's been real with them, not fake. The super apostles don't know what's in Paul's heart. They can't read his heart. They can't read his motives, even though they are claiming that they can. And so Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 12 that he boasts because his conscience is clear. The idea of Paul's boasting here is not one of arrogance and sinful pride. To boast is to joyously exult in something, to delight in it, to have confidence in something. And where is Paul's boast? Is it in himself? No, Paul's boast is in the grace of God. God's grace is the whole reason behind Paul's ministry. So Paul is confident that his motives have been pure. He says here, the testimony of our conscience. Paul appeals to his own conscience. He has heard all of these charges that have been leveled against him, all of these critiques about his ministry, but Paul's conscience rises up and answers those accusations and critiques. And Paul's conscience says, these accusations are not true. They're not based on fact. So what does Paul's conscience say? He says in verse 12, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. First, by simplicity, Paul just means single-mindedness, straightforwardness, candor, honesty. In other words, Paul has shot straight with the Corinthians. He's genuine. He's real. He's not fake. He's not shady. Secondly, by sincerity, he means purity of motive. But notice what word describes and modifies both Paul's simplicity and his sincerity. It's the word godly. In Greek, the word godly modifies both simplicity and sincerity. So if Paul has been honest and straightforward and pure in his motives, he tells us it's come about because of God. It's a godly simplicity and sincerity. It's rooted in God's grace. It's because of God that Paul has been who he is with this little church. And that's why Paul can boast, because it's all due to God's grace. Paul's not boasting in himself. He's not bragging. He's not trying to be in the spotlight. He's not patting himself on the back as Mr. Gifted Super Pastor, because he knows that he is not ultimately responsible for the fruit of his ministry among the Corinthian church. Only God is. Look again at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. It was not according to earthly, worldly wisdom 
or all the leadership books that Paul read that he exercised his ministry among the Corinthians. It wasn't his seminary degree. It wasn't his eloquent preaching, which the super apostles said his preaching is not that great. It wasn't his experience and training and how many pastor's conferences he attended or how he did an internship under Charles Spurgeon or how many Puritan paperback books he's read. Paul says it's all due to God's grace. Paul is not taking any credit here. Paul doesn't want any credit at all for the, what has happened in the Corinthian church, the fruit that has happened. He doesn't want any credit at all. And please understand something. We are not lifting the Apostle Paul up as some superhero Christian. Some pastors do that when they preach through Paul's letters. You would think that Paul died on the cross for their sins. Paul was a sinner saved by grace, just like every Christian. We are lifting up Jesus as the one who gave Paul the grace to minister. We are exalting Jesus, not a man. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowered Paul in ministry, and he is the one who inspired him to write these words. Paul tells us the reason he was pure in his ministry motives was all due to God's grace, not him. So let's not exalt Paul. We're here to exalt Jesus as we read what Paul says. In fact, when you read Paul's epistles in the book of Acts, you get the impression that Paul was outspoken and a little rough around the edges. Not exactly a warm and bubbly personality. He'd tell you straight to your face what was on his mind. And then there's that little incident in Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Barnabas have such a heated argument, they eventually have to part ways. So Paul was not some meek soft-spoken man. He appears to be a little rough around the edges in his personality. But he cared for this little church that he planted. And he tells them in verse 12 that he acted the way he did toward this church because of God's grace. Paul takes no credit here. He would not want us to exalt him. He would tell us to exalt Jesus. So when Paul looks over the fruit of his ministry, he says, point the finger at grace. Paul will not take credit for anything. He points the finger at the gospel. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says that he came preaching Christ crucified, not the wisdom of the world, not earthly wisdom. The super apostles were obsessed with wisdom. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians Even Paul mentions earthly wisdom here in verse 12 today. But Paul, on the other hand, preached the cross. He preached the overwhelming love of God for sinners. He preached grace, Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. In contrast to the super apostles who Paul says emphasized earthly wisdom as the way to do life and ministry. You know what happens when we try to do life and ministry by earthly wisdom, we become like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. Ray Ortland says, Our natural wisdom panders to our pride and makes losing unthinkable. Tolkien's Ring Trilogy reminds us that our golden rings of power only make us weird like Gollum. 
The key to life is not getting more of these golden rings, but throwing them decisively away into the fires of Mount Doom. That humility is the wisdom from above. Earthly wisdom and pride turns us into Gollum. And the thing about pride is that you don't know that you look like Gollum, but everybody else can see it. Earthly wisdom and pride turns us into Gollum. We're deformed and emaciated and sickly and selfish and self-absorbed. And who wants to live that way? And who wants to be around someone like that? What happens when you see a prideful person? What do you think? You want to put them in their place, don't you? Understand this. Grace humbles. You know someone has truly encountered the grace of God when they're humble. And isn't that what we desperately need today? What the world needs right now is humility. Because everybody has an opinion and everybody is spouting their opinion on social media. So if you're looking for humility, don't go to social media. If you're looking for humility, stay away from social media. But if you're looking for boasting and you're looking for pride and you're looking for self-promotion, here's where you find it. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I feel like social media is just full of golems right now. It's a bunch of golems just typing away. People spouting off their opinions, clutching their golden rings of power, and it's slowly killing them. They're deformed, they're emaciated, they're sickly, and they don't even know it. Listen, Christian, you will not grow, you will not flourish as a Christian, you will not deepen and mature by consuming social media 24-7. You won't. It's a cesspool especially during this significant moment in our history. You will not grow, you will not mature by consuming tweets and status updates all day long, full of anger, division, and pride. You know what that is? That's the devil's buffet. That's how I think of social media now. It's the devil's buffet. So don't grab a plate and get in line at the devil's buffet. Instead... Get low before the Lord and seek Jesus. Don't feast on earthly wisdom. Don't feast on fleshly wisdom. It will stunt your growth, make you sick, frail, depleted, and exhausted. You know what won't emaciate you? Humility. And when you get low before Jesus, he will give you rest, true rest, Does social media do that? Does social media give you the rest that you crave? Of course not. And listen, I'm not against social media. But does it, be honest, does it give you rest? Do you feel light? Do you feel free after an hour scrolling through? Does Facebook make you humble? I'm not on Facebook. But I know that Twitter won't. Does Facebook make you humble? Twitter certainly won't. There's rest available if we will humble ourselves. Jesus is the most humble person in the universe and he offers you himself. 
green pastures and still waters are awaiting you. Humility. That's where Jesus lives. That, therefore, that's the safest place that we could be. The safest place we could ever be is in humble dependence on the Lord in prayer. And that's often the place we don't want to go. The safest place that we could be is in humble dependence on the Lord in prayer. And sadly, that's often the place that we don't want to go. But that's where life is. That's where peace is. That's where we will flourish. That's where we grow and where we deepen. And who doesn't want more of that in their life? Who doesn't want to grow and mature as a Christian? We will when we humble ourselves before the Lord. If you're looking for humility, if you're looking for life and rest, if you're looking for green pastures and still waters, you'll find it at the cross. If you don't want to be like Gollum, if you want humility, you'll find it with Jesus. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.8 that grace can change the way we think by giving us a humble mind. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A humble mind, that's a weird picture, isn't it? A humble mind. It's a weird imagery, but it's spot on. We're called to have humble minds because in our flesh, we all think that our way is the best. We're called to have humble minds because we all think that our way is best, our ideas are the greatest, our opinions are correct, our view of a particular topic is the most balanced. That's earthly wisdom. That's the earthly wisdom that Paul's talking about here in verse 12. But what the world needs right now is humble minds. Everybody has an opinion about what's happening in our world right now. Everybody has an opinion, and everyone is right in their opinion, and everyone else is wrong, unless, of course, you side with them. We need humble minds. Listen, the church should be leading the way with humility in this season. In this significant moment of history that we have found ourselves, the church should be leading the way with humility. We should be the ones who show the world that the gospel produces humble minds. And Paul is showing us that here. His mind, his conscience was humbled by the grace of God. He had no grounds for boasting. He could take no credit for what was happening in his ministry. It was all due to God's grace and it humbled Paul. Tim Keller said... If we were to meet a truly humble person, C.S. Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. 
True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. Isn't that good? Let's be a church whose egos are like toes. Toes just work. Toes are just there. Toes don't draw attention to themselves. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It's humility. You know what? The devil hates humility. And one of the devil's greatest fears is that you would cultivate a life of humility. He can't stand to see you and me humble ourselves before the Lord. It's like nails on a chalkboard for him. The devil hates humility. And he will do whatever he can to keep you from humility before your Lord. The devil hates it when you point the finger at grace. He does not want you to get low before the Lord in prayer and in dependence on Him. So, let's stick it to the devil, okay? Let's give him a hard time for once. Let's stick it to the devil and let's get low before the Lord. As a church, let's humble ourselves before Him and then think about what awaits us in the low places Joy and strength and truth and peace and wisdom and grace. In essence, God, Jesus awaits us in the low places. Do you want to get some traction in your life, Christian? Pursue humility. Look to the cross and see the wisest man in the world humbling himself to a brutal death on the cross for ignorant sinners like us. The way to newness, the way to revival, the way to restoration, the way to healing is humility. It's how we grow. Do you want to grow and mature? Pursue humility. To grow up in Christ, you have to go down. I don't know, I've added something in the middle of my sermon here. I don't know if you know that J.I. Packer died two days ago. A significant impact on many Christians, his book, Knowing God, obviously many others. Here's what J.I. Packer said about growing up in Christ and humility. He said, what we have to realize is that we grow up into Christ by growing down in lowliness. Christians, we might say, grow greater by getting smaller. Pride blows us up like balloons, but grace punctures our conceit and lets the hot, proud air out of our system. The result is we shrink and end up seeing ourselves as less, less nice, less able, Less wise, less good, less strong, less steady, less committed, less of a peace than we ever thought we were. We stop kidding ourselves that we are persons of great importance to the world and to God. 
And we settle for being insignificant and dispensable. Offloading our fantasies of omnipotence, we start trying to be trustful, obedient, dependent, patient, and willing in our relationship to God. We give up our dreams of being greatly admired for doing wonderfully well. To grow up in Christ, you have to go down. You have to point the finger at grace. Do you want to become a more deep, profound person? Then get low before the Lord. Behold the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus. Be still before the Lord. Humble yourself and get quiet before the Lord and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's where we flourish. That's where we thrive in humble dependence upon the Lord, reading His Word. I was struck by a thought I heard several weeks ago. It said, take all of the tweets, everything you've been reading on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and put them in a book. Would you want to sit down and read that book? Let's be a church that says, I want to sit down and read this book. I want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's where we thrive, when we humble ourselves. When we echo the words of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. That's when we flourish and grow. And who doesn't want that? But it's hard, isn't it? If you're like me, pride just comes so easy. It comes so easy to all of us. It's hard to point the finger at grace. We'd rather have people point their fingers at us and say, oh, you're so great. You're so great. And we're like, no, really, please stop, really. It's just hard, isn't it? Right, Ortland said, we all want to be humble, but what if nobody notices? <laughs> That's the struggle, isn't it? We want to be humble, but what if nobody notices us? That's sobering. What if nobody notices to get humility, you have to stare at the humility of Jesus until you see it, until you get it, until it clicks, until it gets down into your pores. But pride, that comes easy. You don't have to lift a finger for pride. You're good at it, and so am I. But humility comes when you stare at Jesus. When you stare at the glory of Jesus, it will kill and it will suffocate pride. Do you want to grow and mature and deepen? Here's how you do it. You point the finger at grace. Give God all the glory. So let's do that this week. Think about how you have seen the grace of God in your life. And then tell someone about five ways that you have seen God's grace in your life. Where have you seen God's kindness in your life? Think about five things that you can point to in your life as clear proof of God's grace Clear proof of his kindness to you. Point the finger at grace and then put it on social media. Let's change social media this week. List five things and then use this hashtag point the finger at grace. Let's get something positive out there for God's glory. Kids, you can get involved too. Write down five things that you are grateful for. Draw a picture. With all the negativity and all the cynicism and all the drama and all the hatred and all the division, let's talk about some good things this week. 
Let's talk about how we've seen God's grace at work in our lives. Let's rehearse how he has been kind to us. And then let's give him the glory for that. Point the finger at Jesus and give him all the credit, all the glory in your life. Recognize that any good that has come your way in life, it's all due to his grace. If you've had success at work, point the finger at grace. If you've had seen the fruit of your parenting, point the finger at grace. If you're in a sweet season of your marriage, point the finger at grace. If God has used you to minister to others and to pass on his comfort, then point the finger at grace. As we close, let me ask you today, have you responded to God's invitation to his grace? Today, Jesus is calling you to come and lay down your heart before him. Don't let your brokenness, don't let your sin keep you away. Jesus died for all of that. And don't let your attempts at being good keep you away. Don't let your pride keep you away. Jesus died for that too. You can never be good enough to earn God's love. Listen, God loves you with such intensity that he sent his son to live and die for you. That's grace. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus, see his burning love for you on the cross and repent and turn and trust in him. doesn't matter how many times we fail, we always come back to the cross, don't we? We come back to the cross to be reminded once again of God's unshakable, burning love for sinners like us. And it doesn't matter how intense your faith is either. It can be small. It can be weak as long as your faith is placed in Jesus, in Christ crucified. Listen, it's not the intensity of your faith that saves you. Jesus is who saves you. His life, his death, his cross, his blood, his resurrection. Will you repent and believe today? Why would you continue to close your heart to his grace? Why would you continue to close your heart to someone who loves you with such burning love and passion? So to all who are running away from God this morning, to all who need peace, And to all who are running on empty this morning, or those who have been feeding on the junk food of this world and you're just sick, or you've been rummaging for scraps trying to find satisfaction somewhere, or maybe you've totally made a mess of your life and you're having to deal with the consequences, or maybe in your pride you're simply pretending you're fine when deep down you know you're not okay. To you, Jesus says simply, come, come unto me. There's one word for that, grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Your grace and your kindness appeared in the person of your Son. In your grace, you've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you make us a church who recognizes how dependent we are, how weak we are, how needy we are, and may that catapult us into your presence down on our knees where we will find our strength, Lord, for your power, your strength is made perfect in our weakness, not in our swagger. Make us a humble church, Lord. Make us a humble church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.